0: to see that I'm not the only one who makes mistakes up here (laughs) all this uh, rain that we've been getting reminds me of when we first moved here to upland back in 1991 we bought a home here and that home—it's uh, an older home—and it, it had a family addition or a family room addition that was placed on it by the uh, prior owner that we purchased the home from. He and his buddies uh, built this family room on the back of the house, and uh, I'm sure it was an unpermitted affair. Uh, it had a flat roof, and um, so as we were, you know, negotiating on the home, we had a home inspector come out and examine the property, and they told us that the roof on the family room addition wasn't really in very good condition. And so they recommended that we get a, a roof certification or warranty. And so we made that a condition of closing, that the, that the seller would provide, pay and provide a one-year uh, roof warranty. And so we got the documents, and we closed on the, on the loan and uh, moved into the home. And I don't know if you remember or not, but uh, prior to, we moved in in September of 91, and prior to that, Southern California had been undergoing an extended period of of, uh, drought. And uh, right after we moved in, we brought the blessings of the Lord with us to Southern California. (laughs) Actually, what we brought was uh, Texas-style rainstorms, and uh, it just rained all the time, and uh, that roof just leaked and leaked and leaked and the water would be dripping down inside the family room from the the drywall and the ceiling and so forth. And so I called the roofer up and he would come out and climb up there and daub around some roofing tar and leave and and then it would rain again and it would leak again and he'd come back out. And we did this a number of times until finally I called him to have a heart-to-heart talk with him. And I said to him that you uh, <clears throat> had provided a you know a a warranty on this roof and he said, No, 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 you don't understand. I didn't I didn't guarantee that the roof wouldn't leak. I just guaranteed that if it li- leaked I'd come out and fix it. And I said, Oh Well that's not much of a warranty then. And uh shortly after that unsatisfying conversation, uh, we I think we were home that night when a six foot by six foot section of the ceiling collapsed into our family room and um, anyway so much for roof warranties they weren't it, this one at least wasn't worth the paper it was printed on but the text before us this morning and if you'll open your Bibles to Romans 5 we're going to see a real warranty a real guarantee one that will hold up. In Romans 5, page 1129, if you're using a pew Bible. The context of of this uh, section of uh, Paul's epistle here in Romans chapter 5 is he's finishing up his extended treatment of the doctrine of justification. And he has elaborately presented that for us in chapter 3 and the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4. And he's entering here into chapter five, you'll remember, to to answer a question that would have really been foremost in the mind of his readers. And the question that, that would have been on their mind as they had followed his argumentation through the early chapters of this book is, is that um, will this concept of justification by faith alone really hold up in the judgment day? This idea that we have no... Involvement in this, that there is no human effort involved in any way, no law keeping of any way, shape or form, is that really going to hold up in the judgment day? Will it provide us the security against the coming wrath of God? That's the question that's on their mind. And Paul answers that question for them here in chapter five with an overwhelming yes, it will hold up. And he does it by by, um, marshalling a a number of reasons. Actually, in the first 11 verses here, six reasons. Six reasons why justification by faith alone will not fail them in the end. And so we have looked at the first four of those reasons over the prior three weeks. We're going to finish with reasons five and six here this morning. Let me read the text for you, beginning in verse 1, Romans 5. Therefore... Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation six reasons in these 11 verses why you can be sure that your justification will hold up in the final judgment day why you can be sure that when it comes time to stand before god that you will not have to flinch they are just to review for you and i put them in your handout if you don't have your handout there pull it out and you can follow along but the first is that we have peace with God there in verse 1. God is at peace with us, simply said. Beyond that, in the beginning part of verse 2, the second reason is that we are standing now in the domain of grace. We are standing in grace. Third, we rejoice in hope. Second half of verse 2 into the beginning of verse 5. We rejoice in hope. Hope of the future glorification of our bodies and hope in the present day-to-day affliction and suffering brought about by our commitment to Christ. Fourth, and this is what we looked at last time, is that we know God's love. Second half of verse 5 and through verse 8. The fourth reason why we know our justification will hold up is that we know God's love for us. And fifth, this morning is that we have a guarantee. We have a guarantee. Now, let's look at the text together here. Paul has spoken in the in uh, second half of verse 5 through verse 8 about God's love for us, his love for sinners. And so he's now going to draw upon that and draw out of that the necessary and logical inference that, that expression of love contains. The process of doing that will give us our fifth reason. And I've called it our guarantee, verses 9 and 10. Our guarantee is a derivative of God's love for us. Now, look at verses 9 and 10 together. Paul is going to make what's essentially one argument in these two verses, but it has two parts to it or two aspects to this one argument of why we are eternally secure, verses 9 and 10 and he's going to do this utilizing a form of logic okay 9 and 10 is a logical argument that he is going to utilize and it's called an a ar fortiori argument a ar fortiori and that just literally from the latin means from the stronger he is going to argue from the stronger or from the harder or from the more difficult to the easier and the argument simply put goes like this since this is true Therefore, this must be true also. For example, an argument, an arforsiori argument, would go like this Since I am too old to serve in the United States military, therefore my father is certainly too old to serve in the United States military. Okay? That's how the argument is put together. Since I am too old and my father is certainly too old, too old. So Paul is going to then argue in that manner in these two verses and in the process, give us this ironclad guarantee that our justification will hold up. So let's unpack the logic of this argument together here. Verse nine, much more then, and that's our clue, by the way, to the argument, much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Paul starts and he he bases it in the fact that we have been justified, he said, by his blood. What does that mean? What does it mean to be justified by his blood? Earlier, verse uh, 24, chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 24, we're told that we are justified by grace. And here in chapter 5, verse 1, we're told we are justified by faith. And now down here in verse 9, we've been justified by his blood. So which is it? Are we justified by grace? Are we justified by faith? Or were we justified by his blood? What does he mean by all of that? Well, he means simply this. Grace is the source of our justification. Faith is the condition for receiving our justification. And that leaves blood as what we will call the basis of our justification. The basis of it. And we know that again from chapter three, verse 25, where the blood of Christ is spoken of again back there in chapter three, verse 25, it says God publicly displayed Jesus Christ as a propitiation in his blood, a propitiation in his blood. Now, a propitiation is a big word. It just means a gift given to turn away or to avert, avert the wrath of God. And so the the the. blood of jesus christ the the gift of jesus christ is a gift to god turning away his wrath towards us as sinners now it's not the fluid that does this okay when it talks about here in verse nine justified by his blood the basis of our justification is not the fluid that ran in his veins okay when it speaks about blood shed, it is talking about a violent death. Okay, the shedding of blood is talking about of a violent death. And so it is the death of Jesus Christ that is the basis of our justification. And the New Testament speaks of the blood of Jesus Christ, it's talking about his death. Okay? It's talking about his violent death. And so Paul says, verse nine, much more than having now been justified by his blood, that is by his violent death, We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Paul says we are justified here in the present, have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. The question, remember, on people's minds are, what about the future? What about the future, Paul? We're justified now, okay, we'll accept that, but what happens in the judgment day? What about the future? Folks, the wrath of God is a very real thing. A very real thing. It is a fearful thing. It comes upon all who refuse to enter into the ark of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God will come upon them. It's prefigured for us, this whole notion of wrath, and I know it's not a popular uh, thing to talk about today in in, uh, many pulpits, but the wrath of God is very real to the Scriptures, woven into the fabric of the Scriptures. That wrath of God is prefigured for us in the flood. When you think about the flood, you think about God just washing the planet of all human life, all animal life. That is a prefiguring of the coming wrath of God. We know that to be true, by the way, because um, Peter says that, Second Peter 3, verses 3 through 7. He speaks of it in just that way. That was a prefiguring of the final coming wrath of God. The wrath of God is also illustrated for us in the New Testament, in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of Revelation chapter six through nineteen. When you read through Revelation chapter six through nineteen and you see all of that horrible, scary stuff pouring out on the earth, you are to think about God's wrath and judgment, because that is what it is illustrating for you. That final judgment, when final wrath that God will pour out upon uh those who have refused his son in a place called hell or the lake of fire is prefigured, is illustrated for you in the flood and in the judgments of the tribulation. So in light of Paul's indictment, verses, or chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, and the fact that all stand guilty before God, right, and all reside under the wrath of God, then it's something that any thoughtful person ought to fear. The wrath of God is something that any thoughtful person should fear. The writer of the Hebrews says, Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed for men to die once. And after this comes what? Judgment. It also says Hebrews 10:31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this notion of the wrath of God is a very serious, very heavy, very real concept. That any thoughtful person should give attention to. You know, if God has no wrath, then the death of Jesus Christ is incomprehensible. It makes no sense. If there is any other way to reconcile humanity with their creator other than the death of Christ, then the cross would not be glorious. It would be monstrous. The wrath of God is so real, so significant, So serious that the only way to avert it was for God to slaughter his own son as a substitute in our place. So the wrath of God is real. Just a few years ago, a little over three years ago now, there were hundreds of thousands of vacationers. They had saved their money and they had traveled off. It was right around just after Christmas time. They had traveled off to a beautiful locale with, with beaches where the sun is warm and, and the opportunity for relaxation is profound. And one morning, out strolling around, men, women, and children by the hundreds of thousands were snuffed out in a tsunami. Do you remember that? That wave rolled ashore and it just when it went back out, it just swept everything clean with it. All were gone. The wrath of God is like that. It is like a tsunami building things over this world. It would be like an, an avalanche, a, a snow cliff waiting to happen with a sleepy little ski lodge below. Everybody's going about their business, giving no thought at all to the fact that the mountain is going to crumble any moment and they'll be swept away. This is what the Bible presents as a picture of the wrath of God. So it's something serious, and it, and it needs to be thought about. And that's what Paul's readers were thinking about. Paul, what about this coming wrath of God? Is your justification by faith alone going to hold up in that? Paul says, yes, yes. Having been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, he's going to say, we no longer need fear. The wrath of God, he says over in Ephesians chapter two, verse three, that we are no longer children of wrath. You remember that? He says, first Thessalonians one ten, that we've been spared from the wrath to come. Jesus said in John chapter five, verse twenty four, that we've crossed over from death to life. So for the believer, the wrath of God doesn't hang over us in the same way that it hangs over the rest of the world. Now, Paul is going to give us his guarantee here in verse 9. He's going to use his a uh, fortiori argument. And what he's going to demonstrate is that our past justification will save us from this coming wrath. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. God has already done the most difficult thing. The most difficult thing is to justify people who are helpless, ungodly and sinners Verses six, seven and eight. That's the most difficult thing. He has already justified helpless, ungodly, sinful people through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. If he has already done that or since he has already done that, then he will, by comparison, do the relatively easy thing, which is he will keep these justified or acquitted people safe in the future day of wrath. You see how that becomes a guarantee? He's done the most difficult thing, which is that he has acquitted ungodly, sinful, helpless people. Therefore, since he's done that, he can certainly keep these acquitted people safe. Verse 10. Now, the second side of this same argument For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, that tells you the same kind of logical style, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He's going to now argue for the guarantee of our future standing based upon the truth of reconciliation. He's just argued based on the truth of of justification, now based on the truth of reconciliation. Justification is a legal term, comes from the law courts. Reconciliation is a term of personal relationships. It is a relational term. To be reconciled means that friendly relations have been restored after a period of estrangement or separation. Words used, by the way, over in 1 Corinthians 7:11 in a marriage context. Same way, reconciliation or restoration of friendly relationships. It is the bringing together of two parties that have been estranged from one another. Now, the key to understanding verse 10 is to see its parallel construction to verse nine. So you're going to have to think with me on this. okay? verse nine, what Paul says is, is that those sinners have been justified. And now in verse 10, he is going to say enemies have been reconciled. Do you see that? Verse nine is that the sinners were justified here in verse 10. He's going to say the enemies have been reconciled. Both of those activities are are spoken of as an outgrowth or a product of the death of Jesus Christ. And they speak about how God relates to us. They speak about how God's relating to us. So there's a parallelism going on here between these two verses. We have to understand this parallelism if we're going to understand the force of the argument in verse 10. In verse 9, he is saying that sinners have been justified by Jesus Christ, therefore they will be saved in the end. Here he's going to say enemies have been reconciled, therefore they shall be saved in the end. So there's this process of enemies now turning into friends. What does it mean? How does it work? It's not speaking here of our relationship to God. He's talking about God's relationship to us. It is God who has been or we have been reconciled to God in that he is no longer our enemy. He is now our friend. When he spoke in verse nine about being justified, it was something that he did for us here in verse 10. When he's speaking about reconciliation, he's talking about what he has done for us. His hatred his enmity his animosity towards the sinner who was his enemy has now been changed to friendship it's been changed to friendship back down in verse 11 notice the end of the verse he says we have now received the reconciliation he speaks of it as a gift it is a gift from god to us think of it this way god was at war with us And we were consequently at war with him. And God unilaterally has signed a peace treaty with us through Jesus Christ. Okay? He has, we have been reconciled to him. That is, he has unilaterally signed a peace treaty with us. Now, here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing. While we were objects of his hatred, he made us his friends through the death of his son. Verse 10, do you see it? While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Well, he was at a state of, in a state of war with us, he then signed a peace treaty. He recon, We were reconciled to him. We became his friends, and he did it through the death of his son. How much more then will we who are now his friends, having been reconciled, be saved by this living Savior? If he turns his enemies into his friends, how much more will his friends be able to stand in the judgment day? That's the argument. It's argued from the harder to the easier. The most difficult thing is to do what? To save your friends or to turn your enemies into friends? Which is more difficult? The first, right? To turn your enemies into friends. Therefore, if he can do that, much more than now that we are now his friends, he will save us by his ongoing resurrection life. It is the living Savior that is the guarantee of our ultimate deliverance. It is the life of Christ that is our ultimate guarantee. Hebrews 7, verse 25 says, Therefore, he is able also to save forever, right? Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always living to make intercession for his friends. Romans 8, 34. Who is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. We have a guarantee. We have an absolute guarantee that says that if we have by faith embraced Jesus Christ as our atoning sacrifice, as our substitute, then therefore we will stand in the judgment day. That resurrected Christ, that living Lord, will see to it. He will see to it. John MacArthur writes in his commentary, and I quote, if sin on the greater degree could not prevent our becoming reconciled, how can sin in lesser degree prevent our staying reconciled? If God's grace covers the sins even of his enemies, how much more does it cover the sins of his children? It's a good way to look at it. It's a good way to look at it. If God has done the harder thing, which is while we were enemies, sinners, ungodly and helpless, if he has justified us and reconciled us, now that we are both acquitted and his friends, will he not, in the living, uh, through his living Son, preserve us against the day of judgment the answer is yes absolutely yes that leads us to our sixth and final reason in this section and that is that we exalt in God verse 11 and not only this not only will we be saved by his life in the wrath that the future wrath that comes But we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. What he's saying here is that in the end, we will be saved from the final judgment. But right now, we are going to rejoice in God in the present. That is the sixth guarantee is that we will now have a different orientation towards God. God has changed his orientation towards us from hostility to friendship. Consequently, ours has changed towards him. No longer do we regard God as someone to be avoided, a fearful judge, a cosmic killjoy. We now see Him and rejoice in Him as the greatest object of our delight. He becomes that greatest object of our delight. His being, His perfections are now that which we rejoice in, which we exult in. Notice. Paul says here that we do this, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that when we recognize, or or we should recognize, that all of God's goodness to us is rooted in Jesus Christ Himself. Okay? God is merciful towards you, God is gracious towards you, God is loving towards you because of Christ. All the goodness that flows to you flows to you because of Christ. Christ is done. We recognize this reality even when we pray, right? We always pray how? In Jesus name, right? That is our method and means of approach. That is the only way we can come before God and request anything of him. So how do we just sort of practically speaking, how do you rejoice in God through Jesus Christ? How does that work itself out? James Montgomery Boyce, in his fine commentary on Romans, he suggests a a few ideas for you here. So let me just share them with you. We can rejoice in God's wisdom. We can rejoice in God's wisdom. A wisdom that is so great that it could conceive of this plan of redemption. I mean, think about this. Could puny man ever figure out a way to be reconciled to the Creator of the universe in such a way that God remains both just and justifier? Is that possible? Not a chance. Only God in his great wisdom could conceive of such a plan. In fact, at the end of this whole section in Romans eleven, Paul will say in verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. We can rejoice in the wisdom of God displayed in the plan of salvation. Beyond that, we can rejoice in God's grace displayed here in this plan of salvation. I mean, God's grace is not just favor to somebody who is undeserving. God's grace is favor to someone who is his enemy. It goes just beyond that they are neutral. They are undeserving. There's nothing to commend them. It goes beyond that. They are actively in opposition to their creator. And yet God pours out his grace on them. We can rejoice in that kind of grace. We can rejoice in God's power. In the power of God that is displayed in redemption through Jesus Christ. The age-old enemy of our soul has been crushed. Right? He struck him on the heel, but Christ crushed his head at the cross. The kingdom of darkness, the wall has been breached. It has been knocked down. There is a worldwide rescue operation going on. Captives are being rescued daily from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and taken from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. There is a worldwide rescue operation going on and it displays the power of God. The power of God. Finally, God's love. The love of God is on display here. It's something we can exult in. It's something we can rejoice in. Where is the love of God most clearly shown? We talked about this last week. It is in the cross. It is through Jesus Christ. Verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You want to know the love of God? You see it here. in The plan of redemption. So, there is much we can rejoice in as we meditate on and contemplate these incredible truths. This provides assurance of our salvation. This is one way that we can know that we have been changed, that we are truly redeemed, that we will be able to stand in the judgment day. That is, that our whole orientation towards God has flipped. We now rejoice in him and what he has done. Six reasons here in this text. Six reasons. And these reasons are given to us so that we might live boldly for Jesus Christ. So that we might live boldly for him. How does that work? How does that work? It works like this, folks. If we are really and fully persuaded that our eternity is secure with God, then that will make a difference in how we live today in the temporal world. Isn't that true? If we your future is taken care of, if we know where we're going, that's going to affect how we live today. We become like the great saints of old, looking for a city who has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That means we're not looking for completion in this life. This life doesn't have all that we need to offer. We hold this life loosely because our citizenship is in heaven and it is absolutely secure. What can man do to me? We have a different priority than the rest of the world. Than those who do not know Jesus Christ, we have different priorities. We see the eternal as more important than the temporal. Let me suggest for you this morning some ways that this boldness might show itself in our lives. Practical ways. That the assurance of our salvation will demonstrate it Self in the boldness of our day-to-day living. Okay, can I do that for you? The first one is in what I'm calling the area of family relations. Family relations. That is, that if we are absolutely assured that our citizenship is in heaven, that that's where we're going, and that it's eternally secure, that will affect our family relations here today on this earth. Listen to the words of Jesus, Matthew 10. Verses thirty four to thirty nine. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword for I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemy shall be the members of his household. He who lives father or loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Those are pretty strong words. What Jesus is saying is that a relationship with him that makes us eternally secure before God is, transcends human relationships it transcends the relationships of parent and child of sibling so what does that mean what does that mean well for some it means that a commitment to jesus christ may mean they are ostracized from their home it may mean that you have to turn your back on family tradition That you may need to suffer the scorn of siblings or parents because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. It may mean that with an eye on eternity that we understand and recognize that honoring our parents is not the same thing as pacifying our parents. That we may need to speak to them and say, my commitment is to Christ. I will love you and I will honor you, but I cannot do this thing. I will not go to this place. I will not do this. Because my citizenship is in heaven. Folks, if maintaining peace in the family requires you to hide your commitment to Christ, then don't do it. Then don't do it. Because your citizenship is not here. And this temporal relationship called family will someday burn. Your citizenship is there. And it transcends all. It means when we come to the raising of our children that their holiness and not their happiness is what will drive us. The most important thing is their holiness, not that they are happy. There are going to be times they are going to be exceedingly unhappy with us. But if our commitment is eternal, then we are willing to run the risk of their unhappiness that we might help them develop holiness. Our family identity, our standards will reflect God's priorities and not the world's. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? A bold living for Christ affects family relationships. Secondly, a bold living for Christ manifests itself in a refusal to compromise at work. Living for the eternal means that it will change the way that you work here in the temporal. Let me be specific. It will mean that you don't join into those um, complaining sessions about your boss that all employees are prone towards. When there's a decision made or not made that, that the employees don't care for, you will not enter into such things. You will refrain from it. You will not let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth. But only what is helpful for building others up according to the need, their needs as it may benefit them who listen. If your citizenship is in heaven, then if you get a raw deal from the boss, you live with it. Without entering into the complaining. Secondly, in the workplace, you will avoid the dirty jokes that inhabit every single workplace. When unbelievers gather together and and the conversation begins to flow, it's there in every workplace. You will withhold yourself from such things. Young people in school, you will withhold yourselves from such things. You will pull back from them. You will remember what Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 4. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. You will live with your eyes on eternity and you will withdraw yourself. From that which is blasphemous. Beyond that, you will not shade the truth in order to make a sale. You will not. Shade the truth in order to make a sale. Your eyes are on eternity. Now, if you live like this, you should not expect to be promoted. Okay? This will probably cost you a promotion or two, and it might even cost you your job. But you understand that your citizenship is in eternity. Not here. That God's provision for you does not depend on you maintaining this job. You do not provide for your family. God provides for your family. Kingdom living, we'll call it. says so no compromises at work. Third, an eternal perspective, a living boldly for Christ in light of your secure salvation will affect your family finances. It will affect your family finances. This is probably one of the most difficult areas. Right? Jesus said that, Where your money is, there will your heart be also. If our eyes are really on eternity, if we're really living in light of what is secure, then we won't spend all that we've got here in a temporal sense. We will restrict our lifestyles here that we might give for the work of God. This confronts us right where we are. We are a people steeped in materialism. We are all trying to get it for the here and now, right? But if our eyes are on eternity, then we'll understand that what we have here and now is a stewardship to advance that which is God is doing eternally. We will develop an attitude of generosity that will pervade all aspects of our life. We were talking the other day at lunch with some of the staff members, and one of them who had former experiences as a, uh, as a waitress was talking about how notorious Christians are to being stingy tippers. Okay? Cheapskates. Okay? And it's true. I've read that in many places. The Christian world is characterized by being cheapskates. We should be generous tippers. We should be a generous people because God has been generous with us. We should make a realistic assessment of those future retirement years. How much is enough? That's a question to ask yourself. How much is enough? Folks, retirement was never designed to be a 25-year vacation. But that's how it's portrayed these days. You need to put aside enough money that you can live on vacation for 25 years. Nothing coming in. Everything just going out. And still have enough left over to make your kids wealthy. If our eyes are on eternity, how much is enough? How much do we need? How much could we invest today in the work of the Gospel in light of Eternity. Fourth, probably the most challenging of all. If we are living with our eyes on eternity, if we understand that we are secure in Jesus Christ and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, then that will affect our attitudes towards suffering and sacrifice. The middle class American mindset is to avoid suffering at all costs, at all costs. We now have created a pill for virtually all types of suffering. Anything that comes, we have a pill for it. We need to anesthetize ourselves. That's the kind of the prevailing attitude. We need to alleviate suffering, whatever it takes. But that attitude runs contrary to the gospel. Contrary to the gospel. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How can his followers be any less than that? See, if this is all there is, then avoid the suffering and the sorrow. Take whatever pill you need to take. So you don't feel the pain. But if this is not all it is, if this is merely a, a blink of the eye, as James says, it's like, the, it's like the vapor above a cup of coffee. It's here and it's gone. If this is really reality, and that we're eternally secure in Christ where we're going to live forever in His glory, then Paul can say momentary light afflictions, right? Momentary light afflictions. Over the next years, by the grace of God, some people from within this fellowship are going to leave. They are going to leave the fellowship. They are going to make the painful decision that they are going to leave the nest. They are going to leave all that's going on here and all the relationships and all of the joy that comes from a loving body of Christ. And they're going to go out to either plant churches or support the planting of churches. Some of them are probably going to go to the 1040 window. At least that's what we're praying for. The last remaining mission frontier, the place where they kill you still. Not only will they leave the, the joy of family relationships, they're going to go to live in hard conditions. They're going to give up all the comfort of here to live there. And they're going to do it because they have eyes on eternity. Luke 18, verses 28 to 30. Peter said, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. And Peter says, in effect, you haven't given up anything, really, really. If you are secure in the kingdom, see, it's all worth it. If this is not all it is, then it's worth giving it up. It's possible. It is possible that someone from within this church will be chosen by God to die for their faith. That's possible. Revelation chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read it to you. These are sobering words. Excuse me, Revelation 6. Revelation 6, beginning of verse 9. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. In the sovereignty of God, there is martyrdom. There are those that are chosen by God To die for their faith. How would we respond if it's someone from here? How would we react if it's someone from here? Will it be a waste? Will it be a life thrown away? They should have stayed here. They went over there. What if it's your son? Or your daughter. How will you react then? Paul says, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? Where is our citizenship? The assurance of salvation, beloved, is an incredibly powerful doctrine. It not just soothes our souls in the bumps and bruises of life, it provides the underlying confidence to step out for God, even if it costs us our own life. May God rivet. The truth of this text, these last four weeks, deeply into our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the security in Christ. And Lord, we know it intellectually. I pray that You would help us to know it emotionally, experientially as well. Our Father, I pray that it would not remain just a doctrine filed on a shelf somewhere, something that we can open the Bible and pull out the proof texts to demonstrate, but that it would be an incredible, motivating truth and reality in our life that would propel us to live differently, distinctly from this world. Our Father, if we are not of this world, but are merely passing through, Lord God, help us to live in a way that would reflect that. Our Father, help us to put our eyes on eternity. And to let nothing break that stare. We don't know what you have for us, Lord, as a body and as individuals. The future is a mystery to us. But this we know, that You are there, and You are with us, and that because of what Christ has done, You will never leave us or forsake us. May that reality transform us, we pray in Christ's name, Amen.